welcome everyone. My name is Ryan. Uh, I'm really excited. I, I feel like probably every time I get up here, I'm like, I'm really excited what the Lord has in store for us tonight, which of course is true, uh, but tonight I'm particularly excited about this. Um, we've been in this kind of larger picture for this series is family living in heavenly reality. And we've been exploring these four different rooms that the Lord kind of um, ushered us into that are starting to establish some new precedents for us, or giving us language for what it looks like to be that kind of family. So we began by examining, well, what are the healthy relationships? When God takes hold of how we relate to one another, what changes, and how does that bring us more into alignment for how we've been created? Uh, we began to look at healthy leadership. What does it look like for us to lead and follow out of a kingdom mindset? Um, we moved into personal thriving, and we looked at that from three different ways, emotional mental and physical. Uh, And now we're in worship. And so Cole last week kind of started us off on this piece about worship. And so what I want to do is kind of take some of the ideas that Cole gave us last Sunday and kind of walk them into one specific area. And then I'm going to hand the baton, so to speak, off to Janae for next week. And I'm really excited about what the Lord's given us tonight because, you know, a lot of times we're looking at the big picture. And when we come together on a Sunday or wherever it might be, Um, The beautiful challenge of the Christian journey is for us to tell the story of God. And that's what we do. We tell the story of God in a way that it interprets our lives. And sometimes we want to step back and tell that whole story. And sometimes we want to focus in on very specific aspects of it. And that's what we're really doing tonight. We're going to be focusing in on one specific aspect of the story of God when we're looking at worship. Um, And so I want us just to really do justice to sitting there. And not feeling the need to rush to the end or to the conclusions, uh, but just to really sit in this one part of the story that I felt like God has led us to. So let's um, pray and we'll jump into this. So Heavenly Father, we testify that you're here, that you're with us, that you're for us, that you're not against us. Lord, I thank you so much for that beautiful time of worship. I thank you so much for the commissioning of our new elders and the blessing of the elders that are moving on into different things. Father, I pray that your story continues to uh, translate and interpret who we are as a community, as one expression of your body. Um, And so, Father, I just invite your spirit to continue to move in this place this evening, Lord, that we would be open-handed before you, that we'd be open-hearted that we'd be so willing to be surprised and delighted by what you have for each one of us as individuals, but also as a church. And so, Father, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, a rock and a redeemer. Amen. And so this is, as we're looking at this idea of worship, this is my thesis tonight. This is where I want us to explore. God desires the struggles of the human experience to be a catalyst for worship. God desires the struggles to be the catalyst for worship. So Cole spoke last week about what does it look like for us to live a life of worship. And one of his final points was about the evolution of life itself, that when we think that we've arrived, we've kind of missed the point. But rather to see that our lives are a journey of us growing into something, whether it's relationship with God or growing into our identities, we have to trust in that process that sometimes we will arrive on these plateaus, but it's our decisions to continue to move forward in a lifestyle of worship that really dictate what we do with those times. And so I really want us to focus tonight on the idea of struggle. And I think it's important that we recognize that God desires our struggles in the human experience to be that catalyst for worship, because it gives us permission to come before God as we are. 
You know, a couple years ago, not long after I had moved here, a friend of mine from college hit me up and said, oh, it's so great to see that you're back in the, in the Sunshine State. I can't believe that you're a pastor, but that kind of makes sense with, with what I've known about you. And I said, that's great. You should really come and, and check out our church at some point. Um, and she said, oh, I, I, I don't know. Like, I haven't really been, like, walking with the Lord so faithfully in the past couple of years. I'd feel weird about coming to the church. And it's like, if that's the criteria for who's allowed to walk in the doors, then I probably shouldn't let myself in. You know, a lot of times we feel like we have to clean ourselves up or we have to get ourselves right before we can enter into the presence of God. But I want to posit to you tonight that 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 desire to clean ourselves up or to edit ourselves before we come into God's presence is actually us practicing a form of self-righteousness. That we think it's about what we do and how we edit ourselves and how we correct ourselves and we get ourselves into the right posture. We put on the right clothes. We have the look, right look on our face and we've you know, showered and washed behind our ears and combed our hair and then maybe we can come into the presence of God. And I think that's so unfortunate because so much of what the more legalistic branches of our body, of the church has done is given us that performance mentality that you have to change who you are before you come into God's presence. But the beauty of what we're talking about tonight is that God desires us to come as we are because it's he who changes us. It's he, he who transforms us. And for us to let go of that self-righteousness and to trust in the righteousness that we have in Christ. So I have three main points that kind of fit in this idea of the struggles of the human experience becoming catalysts for worship. The first is this kind of branching from what Cole shared last week. Worship isn't an, a conclusion. It's a process. It's not a conclusion, but it's a process. For a couple of years now, I've been leading this Friday morning group uh, on meditation and contemplation. And we use um, the Psalms as kind of our centering moment. We spend some time. We have breakfast. It's over at uh, Panera on Lake Eola on Friday mornings if you want to come and join us. But every week we do a different psalm or a part of a psalm, and it helps to center us and to bring us in, and we spend time meditating on the words of that psalm, and after about 10, 15 minutes, we'll kind of come back together and share what's the Lord putting on our hearts, where are the questions that we have, what are our, you know, the little revelations or things that are jumping out to us. And it's amazing that over the course of those two years, it really started to dawn on me what actual worship looks like, because we have to remember that the psalms is the, is the hymnal of Israel, the psalms are the on the songs that Israel would sing as a form of their worship. The Psalms themselves are like this intersection between a prayer life and a worship life. And I think that was so transformative for me to really step into each Psalm and to say, these are words coming out of the experience of a single person, most of them David, but they're being offered to an entire nation as what it looks like to worship God and what it looks like for us to live by faith. And through that and many other things that the Lord's revealed to me over this past year, it's really transformed even my understanding of what I think that faith is. And my definition is this, faith is choosing to participate, especially when all the facts aren't in. You see, in the West, we've understood that faith is intellectual affirmation. That when I'm able to memorize a list of facts or when I'm able to affirm that something is true over there, then that has something to do with my faith. We think faith is like a conclusion that we come to or that faith is an explanation of this is how things work. But I, that's not what we find in the biblical narrative. 
We actually find that faith is us choosing to participate when we don't have a conclusion, when all the facts aren't in. Consider the life of Abraham, that for serious stretches of not hours or days, but years, he was not encountering the voice of God. And he didn't have all the facts. And even the more that Abraham walked down the path of life, the less likely it seemed that God was going to do what he promised. But it was Abraham's willingness to continue to participate in the story that God was writing that demonstrated that he is the father of our faith. And I think this is one of the greatest gifts that Christianity has for the world, is that we teach people how to live in the tension well, how to live in the in-between. For us specifically, looking at the first coming of God embodied in Christ as we even anticipate his second coming and the final judgment and all of this being brought into a dramatic conclusion. And so much of Christianity is about learning how to live in that tension well as we're guided by faith. And so the Psalms demonstrate this sort of faith, this sort of living in attention between knowing who God is and standing on the testimony of what he's done in the past, yet also being able to look forward to the future. And as I've studied the life of David, I've recognized that David always lived a life of constant worship. In those moments when he was completely affirmed by the presence of God, it just emanated out of him in worship. I've talked before about one of my favorite stories is him even taking off his priestly garments and dancing in his underwear in front of the, tabernacle, or in front of the Ark of the Covenant as it's being brought back into Jerusalem. Everything about him was geared towards worship. But David wasted no moments. You see, again, when we think faith is intellectual affirmation, And that leads us to this place where I think I have to edit myself and I have to fix myself before I enter into God's presence. Then when we have those moments of wrestling, when we're struggling with questions or doubts or whatever it is, we don't feel like those things are allowed to be in the presence of God. And we feel shame. And we remove ourselves from a lifestyle of worship. But David wasted nothing. Every moment, whether it was being in alignment with God's will and desire for his life, and even in the moments when he wandered out of it, all of them were opportunities to come back because he recognized that God's plan is not rigid and unchanging and wooden, but it's dynamic and it's guided by God's withness. And that enabled him to write these psalms out of a place of profoundly um, describing the human experience and those things being offered up to an entire nation as human process in engaging with God in worship. David didn't edit his psalms to be the conclusion of his own wrestling process, but they were actually him demonstrating open-hearted and open-handed what it looks like to participate and to wrestle. And not only do those psalms such a blessing for his nation and his time, but they were the same psalms that, that poured out of Jesus and Paul and Peter. These were the worship songs that Jesus was singing as well when he was in temple. And it's important that we recognize that the Psalms are not primarily there to teach us doctrine. Again, in the Western understanding of faith, we come into the Bible and we say, what are the things that I can intellectually affirm and come in and just agree with? Yes, that is factually accurate. But the Psalms are actually about what it means to be human and what it means to encounter God. And I think that actually gives us more freedom to encounter the things that we find there. So what do the psalmic process contain? I've kind of identified two categories within the Psalms. The first is questions and doubts. 
The Psalms contain many processes where questions and doubts are incorporated into the process of worship. And again, they're not always intellectual questions, they're existential questions. The psalm we're going to read in a moment, at the very beginning line, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that Jesus himself cries out on the cross with those same words. And it's not just Jesus leading a Bible study. It's not just Jesus dropping off little nuggets for the people around him so they go, oh yeah, that's in the Old Testament, Psalm 22, let me go and cross-reference it and look in the Hebrew concordance and kind of establish, oh yes, this is what this means. No, that is an existential cry of anguish. That's the kind of question that you ask out of the deep places of yourself where reason and logic have ceased to function. And it's those kinds of questions and doubts being expressed in the Psalms. When those songs are offered over to the people, they say, yes, yes, I know what that feels like. I've experienced those moments. I've had those same questions. I think so many people in our generation and the preceding generation have left the church primarily because it does not give permission to ask questions. The church does not give people permission to express their doubts because we've heaped shame on people. You're not supposed to question. You're not supposed to doubt. There are certain things that are just off limits. And we've heaped shame upon ourselves and upon those that come in with honest questions. And either we lose the capacity to question anything, and that part of us dries up and we don't know what to do with those moments of tension, or we walk away altogether and look for someone that will entertain our questions. But what a gift the Psalms give us of revealing that process of wrestling with God in the midst of our questions and doubts. And the second category is this, longing and expectancy. Longing and expectancy. We find this often in the Psalms, that the lines contain this cry for justice that the cry for justice in and of itself becomes part of the worship process. So many of the Psalms come to this place, usually in the middle, where it says, this is not okay. This situation in my life is not the way that it needs to be. Come quickly, Lord. You see, we as Christians resonate with that so much because we've been given hearts of justice and mercy, but we've also, that births within us, this longing to see the glory of God, the manifest presence of God, made more and more apparent in creation and to continue on that process of healing the world. And so we have to incorporate that into our worship process as well. You see, the more that we worship God, the more that we understand what God is like and the more that we understand God's will. And it begins to transform the way that we see everything. And we begin to look at the broken places in the world and something within us leaps out and says, God, this is not okay. This isn't the way that things should be. And we begin to worship in in a longing and expectancy to say, come, Lord Jesus, come, God, come and show up in this place. And so questions and doubts and longing and expectancy. Most of you may not know this, but at times I also moonlight as an experimental religious drone musician. That sounds funny and ridiculous, but that's on all of my online profiles where I throw my music up. But it kind of came out of some of the processes that I was pursuing in art school. And a couple years ago, um, I released a, uh, a collection of 
some would determine it as music and some people wouldn't. I will leave that up to you. But I was fascinated with this idea of the tension that we contain within our religious traditions. That especially as Christians to be standing between this advent of the kingdom as revealed through Jesus Christ, through the cross and the resurrection, but also looking forward to the final coming and the final judgment of God where all things will be made right. And how do we learn to live in that tension with these questions and these doubts and the longing and the expectancy? And so I began to gather up all of these old recorded pieces of religious music and begin to recombine them and edit them into something new to kind of express what it feels like to be in that tension. And so what we're going to do, I'm, we're, I'm going to play a couple of these pieces, and on, over the first one, I'm going to read a portion of Psalm 22. And over the second one, I'm going to give you more in-depth instructions after, but I'm, we're going to create a space just for you guys to come before the Lord and to express that form of worship that incorporates questions and doubts. And so we're going to begin uh, by reading Psalm 22. So I'm going to pray. I just invite you to close your eyes. And just listen to these words and to feel the sound around you and to let it give you tension. To let it make you feel uncomfortable. That we're not rushing ahead to conclusions right now, but we're choosing to be so very present in this moment. So Holy Spirit, we invite you right now. Open us up. Speak to us through the words of your servant David. May his questions give language to our questions. May his cries for justice give language to our cries for justice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. That you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax, it is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potter. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. 
come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Amen. You can feel, again, this is not theological doctrine. This is existential questioning of wrestling with what does it mean to be a human being and what is God like and what can I expect of him? These are those cries that come from deep within us that reason and logic cannot give us answers to. But they're part of the process of worship. And if we allow those things to be brought into our worship language, it gives us permission to come to God as we truly are, open-handed and expectant and willing to see what he's going to do in those things. And so we're going to take a couple moments and I want you to take out that postcard that you were given when you, when you walked in and a pen. And we're going to create some space for you to express right now at this moment in your life, what are the questions and the doubts that you have? What are the things that you're afraid to ask of the Lord? And what are the places of longing in your life? The places that you're almost afraid to open up and admit that there's still some sort of lack. There's still some sort of disconnect. And to write those things down and and towards the end of the gathering, we're going to bring those to the Lord's table as an expression of worship. Not being afraid of the question marks that live within us, but allowing them to be incorporated into a holistic worship. So I'm going to pray again, and we're going to create some space for you to process with him. So, Father, again, Lord, I thank you that we do not have to be afraid of you. Lord, that we don't have to feel guilt or shame when you're near, but that you give us permission to come to you whole and complete just the way that we are, to bring all of our questions and doubts, to bring all of our places of longing and expectancy before you, and to lay them at your feet. Because we don't have answers because we don't have conclusions, but we're willing to allow you to minister to us in those places. So Lord, anoint each of your dear ones here tonight, Lord. Give them language for the questions that are burning within them. Give them language for the places of longing and expectancy that they have in It's uncomfortable. It's not always pleasant. We want more than anything to be able to run to the end to find the conclusion, to find the the phrase or the experience that's going to make us feel better. Again, that's that's that welling up within us of justice is saying, God, this isn't okay. These things aren't all right. I want to see you move in this thing. But I feel like sometimes when we rush the process and we try to force ourselves into the conclusion, we haven't really done service to the journey itself. And the conclusion, the end of the road, the arrival, it becomes something cheap. 
that's just there to satiate our fears, but not to allow truth to ground itself in the reality of our lives. And it's important that we take those times to slow down and to come before the Lord and to allow our questions and our doubts and our longing and expectancy to hold the weight that they deserve. Not because they keep us back from him, but because they come the opportunities for us to recognize the heaviness of the reality of God in our lives and what he's really, really capable of. And that brings me to our second point. Confessional worship spiritually forms us and grounds us in the moment. In 1871, there was a lawyer in Chicago by the name of Horatio Spafford. And that year, he lost his two-year-old son. Then almost immediately after that was the great Chicago fire of 1871 that just kind of decimated the entire city. And it ruined Horatio's life financially. It really put a wrench in a lot of the things that he was doing. And his family had planned to go on vacation to Europe, but he decided to send his family on to Europe and he was going to stay behind just to kind of work out some of their financial situation and try to help their family get into a better place. And so he put his wife and his four daughters on a ship towards Europe. And there was an accident and their ship crashed with another ship and it went down and all four of Horatio's daughters died and only his wife survived and there's a famous telegraph that she sent that said saved alone and so Horatio prom- promptly left and got on a boat to go and rejoin his wife in Europe and as his, as his ship passed the place where the ship had, had gone down that his daughters had died in he wrote these words the words of it is well with my soul When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot. Whatever my lot. And I love that hymn. I love that hymn because it's a tension hymn. It's an in-between song. It carries with it the spirit of those psalms where we stand on the testimony of who God is and what he's already accomplished, yet it also carries within it the longing to see God come in that final line, and Lord, haste the day when faith shall be sight. What a profoundly beautiful and Christian process that is. When the church found out what had happened to the Spafford family, this Presbyterian church, they regarded this tragedy as divine punishment that it was God exacting his revenge on this family for some reason. And so the family, they left. They left the Presbyterian church and they moved to Jerusalem and they became known as a group called the American Colony and it was dubbed by the American press as the Overcomers. And they started doing some amazing philanthropic work in the city of Jerusalem. And that song is a song that we still sing today. Can you imagine your children drowning on a ship and someone saying, this is God punishing you? That that kind of thinking, that kind of theology for me sits right along with some of the false gospels that say, well, everything happens for a reason. No, it doesn't. No, it does not. Everything does not happen for a reason. Things happen because things are broken. 
but the outcome of what can happen in those things. The outcome is what is possible. When we give the full weight to the struggle and tragedy of our lives, of the human experience, yet we bring those things before God in worship and open-handed expectancy to see what he's capable of doing. That is the call of Christians. And I think the challenge is for us to learn to live in the in-between and to find worship that meets us there. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have these treasures in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now listen to this. Listen, church. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our, cell, in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us. But life is at work in you. We are patterned after the crucified God. As Christians, we are called to follow the crucified God, the crucified Messiah. As we await the final resurrection when all will be made new and we will be brought back into the new heavens and the new earth. In the meantime, we are to stand in this place here and now and to cry out for that kind of justice. For heaven to come to earth and to see things transform now in advance of his full coming. But we have to have the courage to exist in the in-between. Paul goes on and he says this, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Several years ago, I was invited to give a lecture at Belmont University for their faith and the arts community. And we talked about this idea. Why is the world so beautiful and we feel the need to express that? But why is the world also so ugly and broken and we feel the need to express that? Talking about what does it look like at the intersection of faith and art? And I think that good art testifies to how things actually are today. But it is our temptation sometimes as artists, it's our temptation sometimes as human beings to take how things are today as how they will always be and to paint eternity with that same paintbrush. So good art is always honest with how things are today, but great art, great humanity points to the reality of how things are today, yet also points towards the future and gives the answer, gives the forward movement. And sometimes even when you're looking at an artist's lifestyle and their body of work, it might not be contained in a single painting. The story might not totally be told in just one song. 
But we need all of the pieces of that that help us reconcile what it means to live in this tension well, to guide us forward into God's certain and perfect future. What if our modern worship revival had the courage to integrate questions and doubts and longing and expectancy into the words in the way that the Psalms did, in the way that the great hymns did, in the way that the great African-American spirituals did, in the way that the great early gospel songs did? What if we had the courage to incorporate all of that into our worship experience? Because I guarantee you, the more that we have the courage to invite those things into our worship progress, the light will shine all the brighter because it's not things that we take for granted. They're not nice little tropes that just help us get through the day, but they actually mean something because they're landing somewhere. The great theologian N.T. Wright said this, Our task in the present is to live as resurrection people between Easter and the final day with our Christian life, corporate and individual, in both worship and mission as a sign of the first and a foretaste of the second. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Let us worship in the tension. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to invite us to come to the Lord's table that this crucified God that we worship, that we pattern ourselves after, this crucified God, that the death of Jesus that we carry around in our bodies so that we might also proclaim his life, that tension we live in is found at this table. That tension is found at this table. That in the body and blood of Jesus, in the holy elements, we find the experience of the God who holds us in the tension of the here and now, yet also draws us into his future. That God who proclaims, behold, I am making all things new. And he invites us to his table here and now. And so I'm going to invite you to bring those questions and those doubts, those longings and expectancies that you wrote on that piece of paper, and to bring them to the table, not to be ashamed of them, because your Father already knows these things. And he accepts you just as you are, warts and all, questions and doubts, longings and suffering. He welcomes you to his table just as you are. And I want you to put those in one of two baskets, either to share or not to share. And we're going to sing together. And then we're going to read some of those out of the share baskets and incorporate them into our worship progress. That we're not afraid of each other's questions and doubts. In fact, we might actually find solace in the things that other people are asking. That maybe we recognize that we're on the journey together. Yet we also know where we're going and where we're headed. So I invite you to stand with me, please. And let's worship the Lord by coming to his table. Lord, I just thank you so much that you are okay with the way that we are now, Lord. I thank you so much that you release us from this self-righteous notion that we have to edit ourselves or we have to hide certain parts of who we are in order to be found worthy, Lord. For you, Lord, it's not about us being worthy and it's not about us being not worthy. It's about us being chosen. And so, Father, as you welcome us to your table, as we eat of the body of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we take his death into our body, as we drink his blood into ours, 
Lord, transform us. Allow the life of Christ to be revealed in our questions and our doubts and our longing and our expectancy, Father. As we choose confessional worship, a worship of freedom and honest expression, we begin to see you change us and transform us into your likeness so that we too can be a light in dark places. So Lord, we invite you to bless this time. Thank you, Lord, for accepting us. Thank you for welcoming us with open arms. We pray all of these things and more in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I invite you to come to the table. In my feelings of loneliness, why are you not there? Why aren't you showing up for us? Why don't you hear our voice? What can I do to incorporate God into my work? Why can't I be accepting of other religions? Why do we have to feel pain? Why do I need to hurt? I know you created us, but Jesus, you live the life of a man. Do you truly understand the heart and life of a woman? Will I ever be someone's priority? Will I ever be pursued? Can you hear me cry? Are you falling asleep on me? Are we all getting it? Are we kidding ourselves? Are you letting us wander? Broken relationships that matter. I want you to come and fix it all. What does faith and trust really look like? Do some things or prayers not happen because of my lack of faith? Even though I believe you can do all things. Why do those who don't follow you prosper? Why do some of the faithful seem to lack? I long to see heaven on earth. Will you give me the strength I need, Lord, to leave my family if you call me overseas? Do you have a husband that you are preparing for me? And will I have a family one day? Will you change my brother and father to be men who seek you, Lord? Why is it so hard to fully trust, to fully offer myself in relationship? What am I so scared of? Why don't I let myself be fully present? Why is it so hard to let people know me? Who am I? What do I want and what do I like? Why can't I believe people love me no matter what? Why am I hard on my myself? I'm not afraid to come to you as I am, but I'm afraid of the judgment of others. I have always struggled with that. I want and am frightened by the body. I don't trust. Who would be my romantic cohort, a co-laborer in who I may trust and be entrusted? I am not fearful to pursue, but rather fearful to unhealthy union. What is man? Who am I to be fully fulfilled in your presence? Identity, solid, joy, firm, God so knowingly near to walk in the fullness of Christ. Who are you? Who are you? Did you really commission the slaughter of villages, of nations? Do you really reject those who reject you? Are you really one of vengeance or are you one of grace? I may never know the answers. I may always have to wrestle with the questions. I'll never know the fullness of you or the truth or the fullness of who you are. Who is I am? 
What does it mean that you are? You are what? You are who? And so must I continue to sit in the unknown? Is that what it means to follow God? Or is there another way? Is there a way of knowing? Is it possible to find true intimacy with God? Or are you really the God of Athens, the unknown God? I just want a God I can know. Not to box you in, but to love and cherish and embrace. God, whoever you are, God, let me know you. Be bigger than my questions. You must be bigger than my questions. Be God and let me know you. Do I know you? Why haven't you revealed yourself to me? Why haven't you answered me? I've been searching for answers to who is God to you and I am lost. Who are you to me? Why do I feel so cut off from you? I want to hear you so desperately, yet I don't know how. Why can't I feel you, God? God, we have a lot of questions. And thanks for being a God who's bigger than our questions, who isn't afraid of our questions, who can handle our questions. And tonight, even as we hear so many questions on so many pieces of paper from so many of us, God, we recognize that we're together in you in our questions. So, Lord, I pray that in the tension of the unknown, in the tension of not knowing everything, in the tension of recognizing that in an eternal God, we will always find questions, that there is no end to the discovery of you. God, may we worship you for who you are, even if it's a small glimpse, even if it's surrounded by question after question. God, we come before you honestly. We come before you as your people who are humbled in light of an eternal God. So there's a story in Mark where a guy comes to Jesus and he asks him to heal his son. And Jesus turns to him and says, do you believe I can do this? And he says, Lord, I believe. Help me on my unbelief. Is that not the best one-line prayer? And that's where we're heading tonight. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I know you're not ashamed of it, and I'm not ashamed of it. But that's what gives us the trajectory. So the Lord continues to speak, and I have this commissioning for you. Go forth in peace and in pieces. May God grant you courage to choose to participate, even when all the facts aren't. May your questions, doubts, longings, and expectations draw you deeper into his glorious mystery. May you believe, and may God help you in your unbelief. And may he guide you through the tension well into his eternal kingdom where there are no more tears. We do not need the light of a candle nor the light of the sun. Go forth in peace. Amen.